Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Most have looked forward to everything that high school has to offer. From prom queen, captain of your dream team, to making new friends. Some may even call it preparing you for adulthood by learning how to drive and landing your first job to make some extra cash. Today, I want to tell you about four intelligent young women who were robbed of all of that and so much more. On the evening of December 6 of 1991, 13-year-old Amy Ayers and 15-year-old Sarah Harberson were hanging out at the North Cross Mall located in Austin, Texas. It was a Friday night, and like most teens used to do, the girls decided to kill some time together by walking around the mall as they waited for their friend, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, and Sarah's sister, 17-year-old Jennifer, to finish working their late shift. All four girls had plans that night to attend a friend's slumber party together at 11 p.m. It was around 10 p.m. when Sarah and Amy decided to walk a few blocks to Eliza and Jennifer's job, I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, located at the nearby strip mall, about a few blocks away. Even though their shift wasn't over, they figured they would just keep Jennifer and Sarah company and even help them with some of their closing tasks so they can get out of there earlier. Shortly before midnight, police officer Troy Gay was patrolling the area and noticed smoke coming from the strip mall the girls were in. As he drove closer, he was able to identify exactly where it was coming from. I can't believe it's yogurt. As the firefighters made their way through the building to extinguish the fire, they figured it likely started from a stove being left on. However, there was no stove located in the yogurt shop. As they made their way further into the building, they noticed something on the ground that appeared to be a charred body. This body would later be identified as Amy's. It was laying on the ground next to the entrance to the back room. This was alarming, and they knew that this was beyond a fire. Once they made their way towards the back door, they found the bodies of Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza clustered together behind the water cooler. Something that really struck the investigators was how the girls were positioned. Though Jennifer and Amy's bodies weren't far from Sarah and Eliza's bodies, they were stacked on top of each other in the shape of a cross. If that wasn't concerning enough, all four girls were naked, bound, and gagged by what appeared to be their own clothing. The most recognizable girl after the fire was Amy, who was positioned with her legs spread wide open with a single frozen yogurt scoop placed in between, causing the investigators to believe that she had been raped in the process of the killings. The person responsible clearly wanted the girls to be unrecognizable, and the others were exactly that, because someone had surrounded each girl with flammable objects from the shop. At first glance, the police believed the girls and the items were doused in gasoline and set on fire. Jeez, right into it then. This is seriously twisted. Whoever murdered these girls seemed to be having fun with the attack. They went beyond murder. They tortured, raped, shot, and burnt those poor girls. Okay, help me understand where this took place. If there was a cop that patrolled the strip mall, why did the killers take so much time staging them? Wouldn't it be risky that someone might see them through the window or something? I was actually able to find a map of the yogurt shop. And whoever took these girls' lives didn't want their bodies to be found right away and was likely hoping the fire would destroy the bodies altogether. 
When you first walk into the shop, there's booths connected to the walls, five on the right and seven on the left, with seven tables in between and a hexagon layout. In front of those tables is where the counter and yogurt machines are located. To get to the room the girls were found, you would need to enter the back room that's not visible from the dining area. Customers did have access to it, though, because the bathrooms were located just past those doors. At this point, investigators knew they had to figure out the exact cause of death, the killer, or the killers, and the motive for this merciless crime. All four bodies were sent off to the coroner for more information. The autopsy reports revealed that each girl had been shot in the head with a handgun, but while three girls had all died by a single gunshot wound to the back of the head, Amy had been shot twice, once on the side of her head with a handgun and once with a larger shotgun. Amy also had a bruise, suggesting a blunt force, and she also had been choked at some point. Two of the girls had definitely been raped and possibly more, and at least two guns had been used at the time. This suggested that there had to be more than one suspect. If robbery was what cost these girls their lives, then the perpetrators didn't get off with much because the store manager only reported $540 missing from the register that following morning. I guess maybe they could have got mad if there was only $540 and went crazy or something, but it really seems like the real point was attacking the girls. Maybe even specifically Amy, since they seem to do a lot more to her than they did to the others. Yeah, it's possible she was the main target. Or she didn't want to go down without a fight. She could have been in fight or flight mode and the killers didn't like that. Very true. She was found further away from the other girls, like maybe she tried to make a run for it. Was there anything in these girls' home life that could have made them a target? The youngest of the girls, Amy Lee Ayers, was born on January 31st of 1978 to Robert and Pam Ayers. She was the youngest of two children, along with her older brother, Sean. She was known as a little cowgirl by family and friends, and she refused to go anywhere without her cowgirl hat. She just enjoyed living the country lifestyle, which wasn't too surprising since she grew up on a ranch with her entire family and loved everything that had to do with farming. Her brother, Sean, who was already an active member in the Future Farmers of America, also known as the FFA, helped to get Amy involved, and to no surprise, she was a natural fit. With all the dedication Amy put into the FFA, she quickly rose to the top. She was not only a junior member, but she was on her way to becoming the vice president. Amy attended Burnett Middle School, but due to her growth, she was able to participate in the FFA chapter at Lanier High School simultaneously. This is where she would meet her closest friend, Sarah Harberson. Jennifer Ann Harberson was born on May 9th of 1974 to Mike and Barbara Harberson. She was the oldest of two siblings and adored her little sister who came two years later, Sarah Louise, who was born on October 28th of 1976. Jennifer and Sarah lived in the Texarkana region, which is a town split in half across the border of Texas and Arkansas. They lived there as young children until they were five and two years old, until their mother Barbara filed for divorce from their father Mike and moved to the Austin, Texas area with the girls. Barbara wanted to start a new life for herself and met a man named Frank that everyone called Skip. Dating led to something more, and Barbara married Skip and her ex-husband Mike also got remarried to a woman named Debbie back in Texarkana. But just because their father lived several hours away, 
It didn't stop him from remaining a constant in both girls' lives. It sounds like they had very loving family. Yeah, nothing seems toxic, and the girls all seem well taken care of. What were Jennifer and Sarah like? Jennifer and Sarah spent the rest of their lives living in the suburbs on the northern side of town. They spent every weekend attending Mass at the St. Louis Catholic Church, which doubled as a private school where they went to school throughout their teenage years. They hoped that their mom would let them attend public school eventually to live out what they thought would be a normal high school experience. With Jennifer being the oldest, her wish came true, and she was the first to attend Lanier High School, now known as Juan Navarro High School. There she would serve as the FFA president for the school's chapter. Aside from that responsibility, she was also a track star and served as the student speaker of the house. According to one of Jennifer's classmates, and I quote, Jennifer was very opinionated. She wouldn't be afraid to say how she felt. I know I'll always remember that along with her corny jokes, end quote. Jennifer's teacher also shared that she brought joy into the classroom. She was more excited about life than any kid she had ever known. She said Jennifer was one of the best that Lanier had to offer. When Jennifer was a senior, it was time for Sarah to join her as a freshman there. Sarah graduated from private school with a humanitarian scholarship, and once she reached high school, she excelled as a student, athlete, and overachiever. She was a student council representative, captain of the JV cheerleading squad, and was a fierce competitor on the volleyball and basketball team. Alongside her sister, she was also involved in the FFA school chapter. The principal of the school would later share that she had already established herself as assertive and enthusiastic. She was a vital member of the freshman class. She was a leader, clearly a kid who was going to make a mark on this place. To everyone, the beginning of Sarah's high school career was off to a great start. Wow, these girls were so accomplished at such a young age. I know I wasn't that ambitious at that age. (laughs) I don't know how they had the time to be this determined and inspiring as teenagers. Like, they were truly some of the best kids. Right. How did Jennifer end up working at the yogurt shop with all that she had going on? Well, Jennifer, being 17 years old, was in the process of planning for her future outside of graduation. Though she was planning on going to university, she wanted to start making her own money. Jennifer's father had recently purchased a truck for her, with the conditions being that she helped with car payments and would drive her sister around. This wasn't an issue for her because she and Sarah were already so close. They would likely be going everywhere together anyways. Being the go-getter she is, she started applying for places, and soon her best friend Eliza would eventually hook her up with a job at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. Our last girl, Eliza Hope Thomas, was born on May 16th of 1974 to James Maria Thomas. Unlike the others, Eliza grew up in Austin her entire life, alongside her sister Sonora. When she was seven years old, her parents filed for divorce. Her father was a social worker who soon married a woman named Norma, who was a professor at the University of Texas, and since both parents remained in the Austin area, the girls split their time between them. The day of the murders, Sonora was staying with her father while Eliza was staying with her mother. Eliza attended McCallum High School in the first years, but later transferred to Lanier due to her interest in the FFA. Man, who knew farming was such a popular thing with the kids in Austin back then? I don't think it's still as popular in Austin now, but we have to remember, this is the late 80s, early 90s. 
These kids weren't spoiled with cell phones and the internet. True. So what was Eliza like? Eliza's dream was to become a veterinarian because she loved caring for animals and working with them. Her father even shared that she was nuts about animals and used to keep crayfish and rats in her bedroom, which just goes to show how much she would care for any animal, no matter the size. Since she was heavily involved in the FFA, naturally she became close to Jennifer. According to friends and family, Eliza had many talents, but she was known for how mechanically skilled she was. This helped her excel at school in welding, small engine repair class, and the agricultural mechanic program. Eliza's first car was a 1971 bright green Volkswagen she purchased with money she earned from working at the yogurt shop. One of Eliza's favorite things to do was upgrade her car. In her one Christmas gift request of 1991 were some car parts that she planned on putting on herself. Working at the yogurt shop gave Eliza and Jennifer real responsibilities. They both worked a few days during the week, but because of school, they mainly worked the weekend shift. This was the ideal job for them, and they enjoyed it. It allowed them to work unsupervised so they could gossip and catch up on life, and they typically ended up closing the shop by themselves. It was the perfect job for the two best friends. Aw, these girls would have been in their 40s now. I have no doubt that they would have accomplished big things if they had been given the opportunity to grow up. They are the type of girls capable of changing the world, and they deserved to live a fulfilling life. Absolutely. The monster or monsters that did this to them need to be taken down. Steph will bring us back to the murder investigation after this short break. During the investigation, the police interviewed over 52 customers who visited the shop the day of the murders. One witness, who was actually an off-duty police officer, came into the shop to get some yogurt towards the end of the girl's shift and noticed a man standing in line ahead of him that seemed off. They ended up having a brief conversation where the man asked him if he was a cop, to which the officer responded yes. The man kept letting everyone else go in front of him, like he was waiting for something or buying time. At one point, the officer saw the man walk into the back area and assumed he was using the bathroom. After the murders, he couldn't help but wonder if the man had actually been propping the back door open in order to return later with an accomplice. Asking the cop if he was a cop was a huge red flag. Trust your intuition, especially if it's your job to scope out these people. <laughs> yeah. And three other customers that were there during the evening witnessed two men sitting at a booth just before closing time. According to the witnesses, the men were sitting at a booth closest to the counter. They had ordered soft drinks and didn't look like they were leaving anytime soon. The witnesses described one of the men as heavy with lighter hair that appeared to be dirty blonde, about 5'6", in his late 20s or early 30s. The other man was described as being a bigger man and both of them were wearing big coats. One coat was green and had an army look to it, while the other was wearing a black jacket. The two suspicious men ended up staying past closing time, and one witness even saw Jennifer lock the front door of the shop and put up the closed sign so no other customers would enter as they started their closing duties. Like most restaurants, there's always a few stragglers, and the men seem to be taking their time because they didn't leave when she changed the sign over. I know this theory hasn't been brought up, but what if they threatened her prior to putting the closing sign up? Like, what if the girls were in danger the moment the last witness left? 
Possibly, but what they did after turning the closed sign over suggests they didn't know they were in danger yet. Do we know if they continued cleaning? Yes. It was store policy to start closing up at 1045, and it looked like the girls had gotten close to finishing the closing duties when they were attacked. The keys were found still in the lock of the lobby door, and all of the chairs were put up on the tables, and the napkin holders were refilled. All except for that table closest to the counter. That napkin holder was empty, and the chair that should have been at the end of the table was missing. This showed that the girls were unable to finish that table, most likely because those men had still been sitting there. At 11.03, the cash register logged Eliza hitting the button for a no-charge sale at the register, which would have opened the drawer for cash. From the beginning, there were several issues making this investigation more difficult. The first one was the firemen that responded to the scene. Though they did do their jobs by putting out the fire and locating the victims, in the process of that, they washed away what could have been forensic evidence. The Austin PD also didn't have much experience with these kinds of cases. They had only ever processed one other arson case. No one wore booties while collecting evidence, so they were just walking around contaminating everything. The girls were never checked for accelerant, and the bathroom was never dusted for fingerprints. They didn't check the lock on the back door for tampering, and they didn't save most of the materials found around the girl's body for testing. Being the 1990s, the city didn't have many forensic experts and only had one fingerprint unit and one homicide detective available the night of the murders. Even though they were lacking in most departments, this didn't stop the public from calling in tips about over 342 suspects and having dozens of false confessions. The police knew they had to focus on suspects that had a history of violence based on how the bodies were staged and handled. At this point, I don't know what they did right. So much evidence was lost. Dusting for fingerprints is basic forensics 101. And why wouldn't they test the items surrounding the girls' bodies? They pretty much based all the evidence off of what they could see. In experience, I guess, Austin wasn't the same as it is now back in the early 90s. But really, that's no excuse. If you're in over your head, call in help from a bigger city nearby. Right. Call in some assistance. Four teenagers are dead, and this is a complex, urgent case. So did any of their suspects stand out? Their first suspect was Kenneth Allen McDuff. He was a Texas serial killer and was suspected of at least 14 murders. On August 6th of 1966, he was convicted of murdering Robert Brand, Mark Dunman, and Edna Louise Sullivan. These murders were known as the Broomstick Murders after Edna was repeatedly raped by Kenneth and he then proceeded to break her neck with a broomstick. Kenneth would later be sentenced to death for his actions, but in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court abolished capital punishment and his sentence changed to life with the possibility of parole. Believe it or not, he was released on parole in 1989 due to prison overcrowding. Following his release, Kenneth continued his murder spree and killed at least two more victims, 28-year-old Colleen Reed and 22-year-old Anne Northrup and possibly up to a dozen more that police couldn't prove. After years of avoiding capture, he was finally taken into custody in 1992 and sent back to death row. On the day of his execution, on November 17th of 1998, 
Kenneth confessed to killing the girls of I Can't Believe It's Yogurt in hopes that his confession would spare his life. However, this didn't change a thing, and as scheduled, his execution was carried out. He was eventually ruled out as a suspect after the fingerprints and hair found at the shop did not link back to him. Well, we have seen this before, and false confessions are common around already convicted serial killers. What do they have to lose? Had they believed him, he would get a few more days to live. He likely would have gotten a few more years as they tried to take him to court and officially convict him of it. You're right. He's already about to die. What does he have to lose? So did anyone else pop out on their radar? The investigators continued on with their search and decided to follow up on another lead that was called into the tip line. They were told to look into a 16-year-old named Maurice Pierce, who was seen at the North Cross Mall hanging out with friends on the day of the murders. They were at the mall at the same time as Amy and Sarah before the girls decided to head to the yogurt shop. The person that called in said Maurice had a gun on him, a 22 caliber handgun. Since the girls were executed with the same type of gun, police took this lead very seriously. Maurice and his friends that had been at the mall with him, Michael Scott, Robert Springsteen, and Forrest Wellborn, were all brought in for questioning. When Maurice's gun was officially tested, the ballistics showed it did not match the murder weapon used on the girls. Aside from that evidence, none of the four teens matched the fingerprints or hair collected at the scene. Nothing more came from this lead. After eight years with no arrests and no new evidence arising from this case, it was passed on to new detectives. On Wednesday, October 6th of 1999, police in Texas and West Virginia worked together to arrest four suspects in connection with the murders whose names may sound familiar. Maurice was brought in from Dallas, Texas, Michael from Buda, Texas, Robert was found in Charleston, West Virginia, and Forrest was brought in from Lockhart, Texas. Now in their 20s, all four men were once again back at the police station for questioning regarding the 1991 yogurt shop murders. It didn't take long for two of the men to confess to the murders. The first to confess was Michael for killing the girls, while Robert confessed to killing the girls and raping one of them. Their confessions didn't quite match the evidence. For example, they claimed to have put accelerant on the girls' bodies before lighting them on fire, which was the police's suspicion. But the actual arson report stated that the fire started on a shelf in the back corner, not on the girls themselves. Also, the bodies and the materials around them were never actually tested for accelerant. At this point, the police didn't care about the details. They felt like they had finally found their killers. A confession is a huge deal, but that's just going off someone's word. At least have one piece of evidence to back that up. A witness who noticed them, maybe? A fingerprint or a motive? They had evidence in this case that will confirm the actual killer once they find him. Even with a confession, it doesn't make sense if the evidence rules them out. This is true. So how did they say it all played out then? According to Michael and Robert, the guys planned on robbing the yogurt shop. Before midnight, Maurice and Robert entered the shop while Forrest served as the lookout outside. At some point, things didn't go as planned, which led to the murders of all four girls. Even though the families were confident Maurice was the mastermind behind the crimes and killings, due to the lack of evidence, the charges against him and Forrest were dropped. 
Robert and Michael were arrested for robbery and the murder and rape of Eliza, Amy, Jennifer, and Sarah. Due to the severity of the crime, both men were tried separately and both were found guilty by a jury of their peers of capital murder. Since the state of Texas had recently passed a new death penalty statute on June 21, 2001, Robert received the death penalty while his partner in crime, Michael, was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Not long after the trials, the investigation was under scrutiny, and people had concerns regarding the guilt of Michael and Robert. To start, the physical evidence at the crime scene was never linked to any of the four men. All they had to go off of at the trial was the fact that the men were in the vicinity of the yogurt shop and confessed to the murders under pressure. In fact, both men told their attorneys their confessions were coerced during interrogation. It turns out, one of the detectives that questioned them was actually transferred for allegedly extorting confessions in other unrelated cases. There was also a photo that came to light of one Austin police officer pointing a gun at Michael's head while he was being questioned. This was enough evidence to back up their claim of police having forced a confession. In court, prosecutors used the recordings of their confessions, not allowing them to defend themselves against the confession, breaking their Sixth Amendment right. Um, excuse me, who wouldn't confess when somebody with authority and power is holding a deadly weapon to your head? It's pretty much die or lie at that point. Exactly. And I'm already pissed that the cop that was extorting confessions got transferred instead of charged. Instead of holding him accountable, they moved him to a different city to keep being a dirty cop? Right. All he's going to do is repeat his actions elsewhere. If people in law enforcement aren't held to the same standards as everyone else, why would they ever stop if they can just get away with it? Doctors lose their license over one mistake, and it takes years for them to even enter their field. The double standard really irks me. Now that this information is known, what do the guys do? Robert and Michael filed an appeal on the basis of an unfair trial. In 2006, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturned Robert's death penalty conviction, and in 2007, Michael's conviction was overturned as well. Then, on August 20th of 2008, Michael and Robert's defense lawyers requested alternative suspects be DNA tested and in conclusion, there were no matches to any man suspected of the killings, including Robert and Michael. Seven of the jurors in their trial stated that they wouldn't have convicted the men had all of the evidence been brought to trial. On June 24th of 2009, almost 17 years after the murder and eight years after the arrest of both men, Judge Mike Lynch responded to the defendant's request to be released on bond pending their new trials. He approved this request, and they were released the same day. The district attorney didn't fight the order and responded to the judge's decision with the following statement. It's long, so we're not going to read the entire thing, but this was the closing summary. Currently, it is clear to me that our evidence in the death of these four young women includes DNA from one male whose identity is not yet known to us. The defense asserts that the testing reveals more than one unknown male, but the evidence presented at the hearing on Thursday, June 18th, contradicts that notion. The reliable scientific evidence in this case presents one and one only unknown male donor. 
given that I could not in good conscience allow this case to go to trial before the identity of this male donor is determined and the full truth is known. I remain confident that both Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott are responsible for the deaths at the yogurt shop, but it would not be prudent to risk a trial until we also know the nature of the involvement of this unknown male. My office and the Austin Police Department remain committed to these cases. Their further investigation will continue to be a priority. My commitment to the victims, their families, and this community is that we will not give up until all of the people responsible for these terrible and tragic murders are brought to justice. End quote. Wow. At least he wants to focus on the actual evidence of this case, and as a prosecutor at that. It's so rare, it seems, to find a DA willing to cross all the T's and dot all the I's before trying to convict someone. Oh yeah, they usually just want to get the case over with. Did he find what he was looking for? Not at all. Four months later, all charges were dismissed against Michael and Robert. No one has been charged, and the two men witnesses claim to have seen have yet to be identified. This crime's motive has been questioned. Though it appeared to be a robbery that had gone bad, people believe due to the lack of money taken at the shop, this crime was sexually motivated. The theory is the men planned to rape and murder the girls and decided to take the money afterwards. It's likely one of the girls knew these men or Sarah and Amy were followed from the mall to the yogurt shop. The only way to find the perpetrators is linking them to the DNA evidence left behind that day. I don't believe they knew these men, because if they did, I'm sure one of the witnesses would have seen them conversate. I think the girls were followed there. I agree. In high school, friends or boyfriends would totally hang out until your shift ended, but there'd be talking and flirting the whole time. Exactly. So where are the guys now? Have there been any updates on this case? Eight years after his release, Robert filed for wrongful imprisonment, seeking compensation for his time in prison based on a coerced confession. On December 21st of 2016, the court stated because his conviction reversal was not granted relief based on actual innocence, he's not eligible for compensation. If the ruling had been in his favor, he would have been eligible for $700,000. Maurice passed away in 2010, and the others all continued to maintain their innocence. What used to be the location of I Can't Believe It's Yogurt is now a nail salon. The city allowed a plaque to be placed outside in the parking lot under an oak tree in memory of Jennifer, Sarah, Amy, and Eliza. The families and those affected by their murders want everyone who passes it to be reminded that justice still hasn't been served. That sucks he couldn't be compensated for his time in prison, especially after it was proven to be a forced confession. Yeah, it seems pretty unfair. And worse is the killer is still out there. These girls never got justice. Four young women who had their entire lives ahead of them, with plans to go to college and excel in the rest of their high school careers, had it taken away from them by what we believe are two twisted men with sadistic motives. Some have to wonder if one of the witnesses would have stayed behind a little while longer, would they have been able to identify these men, or potentially save these girls before it was too late? For a moment, the families had a little peace knowing the killers were finally caught, 
only to find out that due to fraudulent detectives who wanted to play hero, it would all come crashing down. We may not be able to bring Jennifer, Sarah, Amy, and Eliza back, but their killers are still out there, and we can do our part to help find them before they harm any more young women. Most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at crimeandconjurepodcast for our question of the week. Sham, what is our conjure tip of the week? Today, I want to share a metaphysical protection spell you can use on yourself and loved ones. To start, you'll need the following herbs. Rosemary, rue, lavender, fresh basil, mint, and a handful of coarse salt. You'll then run a warm bath and add all the ingredients you've collected. After a few minutes of letting everything seep into the water, you'll get in. As you're sitting in the tub, envision your body picking up protective energy from the herbs. Once you're done enjoying your bath, save some of the water and herbs in a bowl and toss it outside. What a great tip, Sham. Those are all herbs you can get just about anywhere, too. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.